Peter 5, 1 through 7. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. The word of the Lord. Submit yourself to the elders. That sounds like a bit of a setup, does it? Especially that we, since we ordained uh, an elder uh, last week, he was not the one that asked me to preach on this this morning. Uh, But it does sound very ominous because we have lots of examples of really terrible leadership, politically, culturally, uh, in the home, and certainly in the church. And I thought that Given that this is a little bit of a transition Sunday, next week we will be beginning a new series. Um, I thought it was sort of apropos to talk about leadership, and this is the passage that came to mind that we could spend obviously weeks on this, but I think this passage gives us um, a sense of what it tells us about ourselves, uh, that we need these kinds of leaders, and then also what do we need to look for in our leaders. Maybe this should have been done before we nominated and elected Preston, but we're doing it on the back end um, because I do feel like he does fit this, and Scott sometimes as well. Um, Let me tell you about Steve. Um, I'll leave his last name out, but he was a young manager leading a rather large group of employees at his company, and so he had a difficult time staying up-to-date relationally with them because there were so many. And so he decided, um, instead of just trying to schedule things and put his calendar, uh, put meetings on his calendar, that he would just kind of do this sort of roving relational building. And so he would walk down to his coworkers, those that reported to him, uh, cubicles and offices, and just um, check in with them. But also, he wanted to tell them at least once every so often how much he appreciated the fact that they um, were on his team, but also one thing that they did really well and that he appreciated, so um, being very tangible. And after one of these visits, one of his employees did something very curious. Uh, Lenny, one of his software engineers, um, bought him an Xbox. A little strange. Well, Steve was floored because... He had mentioned wanting an Xbox uh, months previous, but that they had just had a new baby and they didn't have the finances uh, to pay for it. But what was interesting is that Lenny had received a number of pay cuts in that particular year. I don't know why, but Steve knew that Lenny did not have a lot of disposable income. But Lenny had the money to buy this Xbox because he had recently sold his handgun. 
a handgun that he had purchased months earlier with the intention of killing himself. He lived alone and was deeply saddened by his mother's death. And afterward, he slipped into this very deep, prolonged depression. And every single night after work, he would go home, he would have a bowl of the cheap little college ramen that is not very good, not very healthy. He would eat that. He would put on uh, Nirvana, the band, listen to one or two of their CDs. Um, That's a compact disc, by the way. Uh, It's what you used to listen to music on. He would listen to an album or two of Nirvana, and then he would handle this handgun that he had bought. took him a month of just holding it before he had the courage to put the bullets in it. Another month before he put it in his mouth. And then it was another series of days where he began to put pressure on the trigger. And he never got to actually pulling the trigger because one day he was in his office and Steve walked in and Steve did his routine. Something very seemingly insignificant, but Lenny told Steve as he gave him this Xbox, last week you came into my cubicle and you actually put your arm around me and told me you appreciated me because I turn in all of my projects early. You also said that I have a great sense of humor over email and that you are glad that I came into your life. That night I went home, I ate ramen and listened to Nirvana And when I got the gun out for the very first time, it scared me senseless. All I could think about was that you said you were glad that I came into your life. And the next day, I went to a pawn shop and sold the gun. So, for my life, you get this Xbox. Thanks, boss. Steve was a leader not because he was particularly charismatic or inventive, or necessarily hyper-intelligent, or wealthy, or powerful. He simply took the time to initiate care towards people. He took the time to just show basic kindness and to recognize the intrinsic value in his employees, not just what they gave to the company, but who they were and why he valued them as a person. He essentially saved a guy's life because of a simple yet very profound act of leadership. Now, when Peter thinks about leadership, the term that comes to his mind is shepherd. And perhaps that's how Steve saw this group of people, his team. He was their shepherd. Peter thinks of this probably because this is how the Old Testament talked about leaders. It talked about shepherding the nation of Israel and this great shepherd Messiah who would one day come from the line of David. And he probably thought about leadership in terms of a shepherd because this is how Jesus described himself. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is, of course, precisely what Jesus had done for Peter. So it makes perfect sense that this image would be prominent. Now, what does this tell us about ourselves, first of all, that we need shepherds in our lives? What does that convey? Because it describes the fundamentals of leadership to some degree, but it first tells us about two fundamentals of our humanity, which all of us in this room share, 
And first of all, we are attached people. Particularly Christians in this context, Christians are attached relationally and spiritually to the shepherd, Jesus, but not only that, to particular and subsidiary shepherds. Peter tells us in verse 2 that the elders, as shepherds, are to be responsible for a distinct flock. They are given charge for a specific group of believers in a specific place in a specific church. So, Preston being ordained last week is in some ways ordained into the church universal, but primarily he's ordained to give care and to be a shepherd for this particular group of people. And what this means also is that Jesus is not an autonomous person, that upon becoming a Christian you are now united to him alone. But he comes to us with other attachments, with a family, in fact. And what he describes is that he has a bride, as a matter of fact, that we are now in relationship to and have to have appropriate reverence for and appropriate submission to. And so conversion, that is becoming a Christian, means not only turning to and being in relationship with Jesus, but it means turning to and being in relationship with His bride, with His church, that if you are a Christian, you are an attached person. The church, you see, is not an apparatus or a tool to your spiritual growth. It can serve in that way, but that's not how it's defined or talked about in Scripture. The Bible never really talks about joining a church, as the Herseys did last week, as much as it presupposes that you belong to a church, the church, it presupposes a relational and ontological reality that exists by virtue of being connected with Jesus, that you are attached to His bride, you are attached to His body. Not only attached, but also it tells us that we are all contingent people. The church body, and particularly its leaders, are meant to provide an indispensable support of care, a structure of support and care. And when Peter appoints elders to care for the flock, he is saying, of course, that we are in need of that care. He's not building a structure to more efficiently maintain control over all the people in the church, but instead he's saying that all of us are vulnerable, dependent, contingent people who need sacrificial leaders, courageous leaders, trusted elders to support and encourage us. Now, we, we must remember that elders, pastors, deacons, leaders in the church, we all are sheep too. We all are contingent. And so this verse or this little bit of this passage, submit yourself to your elders in verse 5, it isn't this comprehensive, no questions asked kind of submission. And if you're ever in a context that, that uh, conveys that, especially a church, walk away. That's not what Peter is talking about. 
In one sense, Peter is instating authority in chosen leaders. He is saying that these elders, this pastor, these deacons, they have a granted authority based upon the authority of Jesus. But these leaders are not self-appointed, you see, but rather they are selected by local congregation, and authority is therefore earned. It's earned by being a man or a woman of proven character and kindness and a self-donating spirit. Those are the kinds of people that should be chosen as elders and pastors and deacons. Those who desire, as a shepherd, to protect and care for rather than control people in the church. In many ways, the greatest qualification for leadership is not seeking it. The greatest qualification for leadership is having some sense of reservation about being a leader. It's in a sense being thrust by the congregation into a leadership position that you didn't necessarily seek beforehand, but that the church itself saw some qualifications in you, perhaps humility, perhaps not being self-seeking, not being self-serving, being courageous, being kind. And they said, hey, we want you, we want this kind of person to lead our congregation, and you seem to fit it to some degree. So submission in this context isn't a forced or manipulated sort of compliance, and it's not all-encompassing. Sometimes you hear submission talked about in the church in various contexts, and it's defined in ways that really sound more cult-like than Christ-like. It is surely, however, with that caveat, it's surely more, that is submission, more than I'll follow you when I agree with you. It's more than I'll follow you when doing so doesn't demand too much of my time, doesn't, de- de- doesn't ask me to bend my will. It certainly means more than I'll submit to the direction of my church if I like that direction. So there's some tension here. Here's some questions that maybe will help us strike the right balance. Does it occur to you to ever, does it ever occur to you to ask an elder or a pastor to mediate in a relationship that's struggling or mediate in a relationship that's in dispute? Do you think that, well, perhaps they have been given this responsibility more than authority to care for me, and maybe this is a place that I can invite that care. And I will speak for all pastors and elders everywhere. What happens is that we always get invited into those conversations too late. We always get invited into marriages in conflict too late. And what happens is that pastors, elders, we end up being midwives for divorce rather than counsel that could be effective in time. And certainly we don't presume to be the only counsel that you would need. My job is more as a pastor in these situations to come alongside as a coach, as a mediator, to help find the resources 
perhaps therapy that would happen outside of my care. But it always happens far too late, almost. And it almost always happens to the point where an elder or pastor notices and then sort of intervenes and takes initiative. And that, that is okay, but what if you saw your own struggles, you saw your own relationships, your own marriage under the provenance of your church and said, maybe my church has resources to intervene? Do you ever think to seek guidance from an elder or pastor about a major life decision, whether you should take a new job, whether you should get engaged, whether you should get engaged to a particular person, whether you should move across the country? Or here's what submission might look like. Submitting our pride and our illusions of self-sufficiency to ask for monetary support from our church to say, hey, I can't pay my bills this month. Hey, I need counseling that I can't pay for. Hey, I have just lost any sense of traction or bearing spiritually. Can you help? None of us should blindly follow anyone's direction, but we all need shepherds in our lives. I met this week we do this yearly with seven other pastors uh, who, are, who I have basically given over care, and they, to me, that we meet and we talk about. It's very gracious. It's very uplifting. But there's an implicit authority as well to say, hey, I don't think that that decision would be in the best interest of you, your church, your family. Hey, I've noticed this way that you talk to your spouse or you talk to us, that doesn't really represent the kindness of Jesus. They have, in other words, the, um, the permission, the invitation to speak into my life. And we all need that. And what I'm telling you is that your shepherd, me in this case, needs shepherds. None of us should blindly follow anyone's direction, but we all need shepherds. We need gracious leaders who see authority, not in terms of control, but in terms of care, and who consider our burdens as their burdens, to be the tangible voice of God telling us, not get it right, not watch out, don't get out of line, but telling us that we're not alone. And that's what shepherds do. Now, let me end really quickly. I meant to spend a little bit more time on this second part, but we'll just kind of briefly hit the high points. What does this tell us about the leaders that we need? Just three quick contrasts. First, he says in verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. Leaders act in conformity with God's own leadership, not as one obligated who rules over the sheep, but as one who lays down their life on behalf of the sheep, mimicking, you see, the self-donating love of God. In the ancient world, shepherd sheep pens would often have a door that wasn't a door. It would just be a gap. And so once the shepherd got all the sheep in at night, that pen provided some sort of protection, but there was this gap. And so what the shepherd did was he laid down in the gap, basically saying that 
anything dangerous has to come through me to get to them. He was willing to sacrifice his own safety for the benefit of the sheep. As sheep, we're not given overlords. We're not given authoritarian dictators. We're given agents of care, those that are tasked with telling us that we are not alone And that in the difficulties of life, we have someone that has got our back, someone that's willing to take the shots, who's willing to stand in front and take the bullet. The second characteristic, it says, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. And I'll skip the illustration here, but Peter undermines this sort of false type of quid pro quo service. Leaders are, are not to consider what they may receive in return from serving or leading, but to do it as Jesus does without the expectation of repayment. Third contrast is between, finally, between authoritarianism and leading by example. Verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock by being persons of influence because people want to follow you. They see something about you. They see the way that, they, that you live your life, the choices that you make, the care that you give to others, and there's something that's magnetic about it. They follow you not because you have a position, but because of who you are. No one needs a position in order to influence. No one needs a position in order to lead. Leadership is realized in the embodiment of the character of Christ. Peter describes this back in chapter 2 about Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. How does the shepherd protect the sheep? By putting himself in the way of danger, by being willing to be the first person, the first object that receive, that sees the wolf, that the wolf sees, that the wolf encounters. It's easy, friends, to aspire to leadership as defined by authority. Everyone loves authority. Not everyone loves responsibility that comes with it. It's easy to aspire to leadership defined by power. It's easy to aspire to leadership defined or that is compensated 20, 30, 40 times what the average person on the team makes. But in the church, leadership should involve deciding to be, to choose to be, willing to be the most profoundly wounded, to take the hits. Because like Jesus, this person says, I will take the hit. I will be wounded. I will suffer. I will refuse retaliation. And by my wounds as a leader, 
I hope to heal many in this specific place. And that's what leadership really is. It is taking position underneath someone. It is being on the front lines in order to protect, in order to heal. Because that's what Jesus does for us. By His wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Father, I want to do something unusual, and that is pray for myself. And I pray that you would help me to be that kind of leader, that you would help me to lead others to be those kinds of leaders, that we would not quantify leadership in terms of remuneration or the number of people led or the number of committees or the number of teams or even the output of ministry, whatever we could write on the bottom line, but that we would define leadership by God-centered influence. And I pray that that would be my vision for leadership. I pray that that would be every leader here, that that would be their vision of leadership, that who needs healing, who needs care? And may I be willing to take the wounds for someone else, to serve underneath them, to uplift them. God, I pray that that would be true of all of us, not just those who have formal leadership roles, but all of us would lead, that we would use whatever influence we have to take the hits for others, to uplift them, to promote them, because that's what you do for us. And as we come to this table, I pray that we would see the links to which you would go to be a shepherd, that you actually do give your life on behalf of your sheep, that is us. And I pray that we would see that, that we would receive that, and that it would nourish us this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.